Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is March 6th, 2014, and today we're joined on the line once again from, well, my backyard here in Japan. We're talking to Ryan Dawson of uh, the Anti-Neocon Report at ANCReport.com. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. I always forget that. Sorry. Okay, ANCReport.com. I hope people are checking that out. Always some very interesting interviews. And of course, we talked recently about the separation of business and state, Ryan Dawson's new ebook that is available for purchase there. And uh, once again, I hope you'll check out that interview if you haven't done so yet, because uh, I think it was a very important conversation. Today, we're going to talk about something that conceivably, at least at this moment in time, is even more important, or at least as important. And that is what is happening right now uh, in Ukraine, and then more generally with the propaganda war that's being waged right now in quite spectacular fashion with journalists quitting on air, etc., and all of this interesting zaniness surrounding the topic. So Ryan, there's a million different ways we can approach this topic, but I think perhaps maybe rather than going in with what's happening right at this moment in the developing story, let's, uh, in our correspondence before this, you you were talking about how you think that uh, basically no one's putting in the the proper perspective of this story and where it's uh, really coming from. So what what do you think is missing in the coverage you've seen of the Ukraine story so far? Well, I think it relates to a converse, the conversation we had when we talked about the book Business and State and we were talking about how people get into sort of teams with left versus right or Russia versus the West and people sort of pick a team and blindly rationalize everything from their position but demonize everybody on the other position and I've seen it very polarized on most of the propaganda networks and I've also seen a just a embarrassing uh, gap in history just a level of ignorance about Crimea and about the Ukraine and and a lot of the atrocities in history it's sort of disaster porn it sort of reminds me of the disingenuous um, care people pretended to have for the Kurds in Iraq when they said the reason for going to Iraq was to liberate the Kurds and I'm thinking well where were you in 97 when they were being ethnically cleansed in Turkey and Iraq and or the free Tibet movement when I mean, that not to say that's not a problem, but why did you start to care only in 2008 for a couple of weeks and then it went away? And so what I see happening is everybody is claiming to care about the people of Ukraine, but that's just cover. It's, it's a, a do-gooder label to kind of throw up for their other interests, which is just supporting their team, which whether it's the Russians or the EU or the West, which I guess would be the United States mainly. And it's just sort of a label to slap on because it looks better than their real reasons, which are always uh, very Machiavellian and have to do with gas pipelines and military bases, etc. And so th- that's just sort of sick in my stomach. And, and I just... I would like to take a moment to talk about Ukraine history and and to make these people people again because it's just become a a stage and and they have all this these disgusting theatrics these neo nazis that are being backed and and the people are just kind of glued to the TV looking at Molotov cocktail explosions and things like it's entertainment and uh this is a place it's really tragic. I mean, this is a place where millions and millions of people, tens of millions of people have died uh, through World War One and World War Two. Prior to World War Two, we had uh, the uh, Lazar Kavanovich, which was Stalin's Eichmann, go into the Ukraine and implement this program of collective farms, uh, which was an absolute disaster as collectivism tends to be. But 
around 10 million people starved to death and plenty of people were shot as well and hundreds of thousands were deported to Siberia. And I want to point this out to show that I'm well aware of the crimes the Soviet Union and the Russians did in the past to the Ukraine and many other people. Um, but that doesn't mean you can paint uh, Putin in today's branch as Stalin. That would be an exaggeration. Uh, as would to call the Germans Nazis today. I mean, that would be ridiculous. However, you also can't excuse everything that Putin has done either. And that's what I see happening is a, a just a silly, crash generalization where people pick a side. And I don't know why people do that, but that's what I see happening. Well, I, I'm so glad that you brought that up. And, and we didn't really coordinate before this uh, interview, but this is exactly along the lines that I'm thinking, because this is, again, what I'm seeing is this polarization of the debate so that people can only admit uh, information that goes with their sort of reading of it. And I think that's just way too simplistic and it excludes way too much of the story. And you talk about some of that excluded history of what's happened to the Ukrainian people in the past and the, the incredible horrors that they've suffered in the past. And then, of course, even in the recent past, over the past decade, we've seen really the, the collapse of the Ukrainian economy in many ways and, and crushing poverty that's been going on there. So these are people with real grievances and they are real people who are really suffering. And I think that needs to be kept in mind more so than whatever political points can be scored by highlighting this or that particular as aspect of what's going on. But uh, I, I think another, well, I mean, I'll let you talk about any other parts of this, the, the historical perspective you want. But I think another important part of this is to understand that the Ukrainian nation that we understand today, of course, is a construct that uh, that has been in, in flux for some time. And of course, in, it was only in 1954 that Crimea was actually transferred to U Ukraine when that was still under Soviet control. So it seemed like a, not a particularly important thing at the time, but of course became important after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's another excluded part of this history that, that well, plays Khrushchev into what's was, Khrushchev was from the Ukraine or exactly. he lived on the border yeah. town, you know. And and yeah, that's it's confusing. The Ukraine... It's one of those countries like a lot of African nations and, uh, and former European nations where the borders were just sort of drawn based on the interest of the people who drew the borders and not really on the, on the differences in the autonomy of the people who actually lived there. I mean, majority of the people in the Ukraine speak Russian. The second largest language is English. Third's the Ukrainian native language. And the reason for that is a really sad history and, and it has to do with the famines and things in the 30. They had the Holodomor is what they call it. it. Was this great famine in Ukraine and Crimea, where just millions of people were starving to death? There was rampant cannibalization. Was a widespread um, event. People were eating other people and eating the dead. That is how bad it was in Ukraine uh, under Stalin. And this is before anyone knew who Hitler was. This was in the 30s. Um, and then that was the U.S. and the U.K.'s ally later. So that the whole narrative of World War II itself of good guy versus bad guy is silly also. I mean, that that's just not how things work. But the people in Ukraine really do deserve our sympathy and really do deserve our attention. But I don't think that's what's going on at all here. It's just people po uh, scoring political points, like you said, um, Nazi fascists being uh, promoted on one side and and then the Russians really don't care about Ukraine either. They just care about their own uh, naval base and their gas lines. I mean, that's important to them strategically, and that is a legitimate uh, interest for them. 
but it's not it has nothing to do with them supporting the autonomy or, or rights or the will of the people in Crimea or Ukraine. It, it doesn't matter to them. No, no, of course it never does. And I think let's concentrate then on what this conflict is really about, because I th I think people understand that the protection of the naval bases is obviously important, and access to that is important for from the Russian perspective. But you mentioned, of course, the uh, the gas pipelines, another extremely important part of this puzzle. Let's talk a little bit about how that factors into this. Well, yeah, I mean, you have a couple things. You have a financial crisis going on at the same time as a political crisis. And then I guess you could call it an energy crisis. I don't. I mean, it kind of bleeds into both the financial and political aspects of it when you start talking about pipelines. And people have to understand how pipelines work. Until they hit a port, uh, they can't really be sold on the open market. They can only be sold to wherever the pipeline physically passes through. And Ukraine, geographically, has been important because Gazprom's lines, until the south line is built, will be finished next year. A lot of uh, the gas, natural gas that's coming from Russia going to Europe passes through Ukraine. And they've, in Crimea, they, the, the way they pay for the bases, this actually relates to the gas because Ukraine has a massive debt uh, to everyone basically. But Russia would write off $90 million worth of debt um, every year to Kiev uh, so that they could have water rights through the Black Sea and, and keep their base there. But the reason they're in debt is mainly because of uh, buying so much gas um, with money they didn't actually have. And they've been victims of predatory loans like a lot of Latin America has. And this is because uh, a lot of their weak leaders in the past, and not just Yanukovych, but all of them really um, since the 50s have been uh, just salesmen. And they, they sell out the, the nation. It's the, the nation that has the debt, but they personally profit. And it's just, you know, the regular gambit that you see of, of people selling away the resources and wealth of their nation for personal gain. And the EU has uh, loaned, oh, 15, 16 billion dollars. Italy has, uh, by itself, has loaned six billion dollars, which they're never going to get back. And this is why the EU is playing soft. They don't want chaos in, Ukraine, not because they care about the people, but if that happens, they're never going to get their money for their loans. And they don't want the Russians to come in and offer the same amount with a slightly lower interest rate or something. So mm -hmm. it's just a bunch of banksters playing off. And you can see the old, the old yats that Victoria Newland, who's the wife of Robert Kagan, by the way, you want to talk about a liar and, a, and a, anyway, that he was a salesman for the Iraq war. And he and William Crystal, of course, were partners with the Weekly Standard and PNAC and so on, and, and your audience knows that story, but I'm just pointing out the the connections there and how they don't even try to lie anymore, really, but she's part of the you know, FUEU crowd and talking about a coup, and then there is one, and I mean, the, the press has just been ridiculous on this whole thing, but Gazprom, which is, sorry, Gazprom is the name of uh, Russia's large exporter of natural gas and oil. I guess I should have started with that, but they're building two lines directly to Germany and the North line is already finished as of last year and there will be another one next year, supposedly. So they would be able to bypass Ukraine entirely here in the future. But as it is now, it is an important partner, but they, the debt, they don't want them to pay the debt. They want them to be perpetually in debt and paying the principal and paying the interest on it over and over again that's the whole point of driving a nation into debt. That's, but the problem is Ukraine has, has done that 
in different directions to the EU and to Russia. And so they're caught really in this tug of war between these enormous powers and the poor people of the Ukraine uh, have no say in the matter whatsoever. And Crimea is an autonomous region. They have their own parliament. They have their own, uh, they have their own prime minister. And both he and uh, the president of Ukraine actually called uh, Putin and asked them for sub military support in the region. So the whole the bit about, well, they broke the Budapest Memorandum, well, that was in 94. The, the treaty was in 97 and supersedes that. So technically, and I'm not a fan of Putin or anything, but what he did was not illegal and it's not an invasion. They, they weren't firing bullets. They haven't killed anyone. Um, that's a, a dirty label for, for what happened. Exactly right. Why do you think this has come to a head at this particular point? Was this something that was part of, of the plan per se? Or do you think that this is just a consequence of the uh, economic situation that Ukraine found itself in? I think it's a combination. See, there's different interests. The EU wants its money back. But the U.S. interests, what did they gain? They don't gain anything other than Russia's loss. And if you really look at it, they failed in Syria. But if they can, or if they could have... Um, drop the base in Crimea, then the fleets would be stuck and they wouldn't be able to reach their bases in Syria either, the Russians I'm talking about. And so you can see that geopolitical angle to it. But it's really ridiculous. I don't know who's making the foreign policy in the U.S. or what they're thinking, but this is going to be a disaster. But that's pretty common, actually. They just It's almost like they want to restart the Cold War. They screwed up everywhere else. Let's bring that one back and flog that demon. It really doesn't make any sense because they're, they're not, they're not going to, this is not going to come out well. I mean, it looks like they're going to have a referendum on the 16th, which was supposed to be in May, and they've already raced that up to, what, 10 days from now, um, where Crimea is definitely going to vote uh, in, in, with in favor for Russia and then maybe break away uh, like we saw in Georgia in 2008 we could see a section of Ukraine breaking off and it's sadly I mean I'd like that for them to have independence for all but I think that might be the most realistic uh, least bloody answer well that's right and I think that's also another part of the uh, the insane hyperbole and, and hypocrisy that's being floated around right now is that people are trying to liken this to um, I mean of course Kerry came out with that ludicrous statement that you can't invade foreign countries without a proper pretext or whatever he said that oh, was just it was so 19th century to do that yes, and yes. he voted for the war in Iraq exactly is, exactly and absolutely. I saw an excellent comment recently online someone said would you rather live in Crimea right now or in Iraq in March 2003. Um, I, again, it speaks for itself, the, the hypocrisy that's going on here in the double standard, which is what really gets in my craw. But I think there's a bigger issue here, and that issue is that if if it is, I mean, it's obvious that there's so much propaganda being thrown around right now in order to demonize Russia on the geopolitical stage and make it look like it's, you know, the new Hitler, as as uh, Clinton actually said today. Oh, um, they always have a new Hitler. Exactly. But you can I, see I, this propaganda months ago. Oh, they hate gays. Mm -hmm. Are, like, there aren't any other nations that have, you know, problems with homosexuality, well, there including was also a report some of that their own out, states. Right. There was also a report that came out recently that deconstructed that and showed, um, and this was by a gay rights activist who showed that, in fact, this is, a lot of that propaganda was based on people who had never read the legislation in question, and when you actually read it, it doesn't contain a lot of the things that's being said about that legislation. So, I mean, I'm certainly not painting Russia as some, you know, wonderful country, but I don't think it, again, I think a lot of the demonization we can see taking place. No, but um, it was just gradual 
grabbing at straws because simultaneously when they were covering that, the state of Kansas, and I think it was Arizona, I hope I didn't get that wrong, but I know in Kansas they were passing laws for, they painted it with religion or something, but it was basically saying businesses can refuse, homosexuals refuse to serve them, uh, they can't go in a hotel, they can't go in a restaurant, as long as it generally offends somebody's religious rights, and it failed, but I mean these are it passed one house, and these are happening in the United States' own states, and that didn't get a lot of coverage compared to what how homosexuals might be being treated in Russia. I found that to be pretty odd. Right, and and we can look at all sorts of other examples: the pussy riot um, idea, and uh, and all sorts of uh, demonization that's been going on. And we know that the State Department has been in coordination with the protest groups there. That there is um, foreign money and and uh, intervention that's going into the opposition movement in in Russia right now in order to depose Putin. Um, we know that Putin is being targeted by these groups that, again, we are not friends to. So it becomes an enemy of my enemy situation. And in that language, we're supposed to think of Putin then as our friend. That's the, that's the position that we're being backed into um, through that logic. But that is not my position. I do not think of Putin as a wonderful man. And uh, mm-hmm. there are a lot of skeletons in his closet. And that's the part of it that I think is it's one layer more subtle than what we're being portrayed because you either have the uh, the official story which is a load of lies and hyperbole and, and propaganda or you have the alternative story which is which seems to paint Putin and Russia as the heroes in all of this and i think that that too is fundamentally flawed so let's step back for a moment and talk a little bit about Putin i've never talked to you about your views on Putin or or what he what oh, he's uh... done or who he is let's talk a little bit about his background and where he's coming from and what he's done to Russia well, I'm sure you know he started in the KGB, which is the equivalent of the CIA. And if there's any parallel of how evil an institution can be, that's what intelligence agencies do. And he worked under Yeltsin, which is weird because later Putin turns on the oligarchs, which absolutely destroyed Russia. So I can understand why a lot of Russians like him because compared to those guys – you know, 1.7 million Russians starved to death in, during the collapse of the Soviet Union. And these guys, the Bo- late Borzovsky and Evermitch and all these people, um, uh, Kordakovsky, etc., they just had this awful voucher scam where they ran away with all the former communist industries that were supposed to be privatized rather than going to venture capitalists and, and having some sort of bidding process and some transition for steel, oil, nickel, these mineral rights. It all ended up with these oligarchs under these really bogus kangaroo court type auctions where one of them bet, you know, only a thousand dollars more than the other guy. And they just stole the assets basically for free. And that would take a long time to explain about Sibneth and, and all that. But here comes this guy, Putin, and he's a nationalist. Like he he's a gangster, but he he does love Russia. Uh, he he does um, want you know, he, I don't know how to say it. He's kind of like George Bush's father. No one likes Bush Sr. He's much better than Junior, though. And what what Putin did with Yeltsin is he buddied up to him, and Yeltsin was a drunk, 
and he let the oligarchs do everything. And Yegor Gaider, who was the prime minister, he was really running the show for a while. And Yeltsin was in the hospital for a year, for example, in and out of the hospital. He had no control over what was going on. But uh, Putin convinced him, like, hey, let me take care of this Chechnya situation, you know, because and he went around with he carried a big bluey knife and stuff. And he knew exactly what to do propaganda wise to get people in his favor. But uh, when he finally got in power, he turned on the oligarchs, most of them. And he threw Kordakovsky in jail. Most of the rest of them were exiled. And so you saw this sort of internal war and he gained a lot of favor. And, uh, you know, compared to the oligarchs, yeah. He, Putin is like an angel compared to those guys. Those guys didn't care about the Russians at all. They stole all their wealth and they let people starve to death. So Putin would never go to that level. But outside of Russia, he could give a damn. And that's what people don't understand. I mean, he's a nationalist. He's going to do whatever he can for what he considers his people. But he doesn't care about the former Soviet states or anything. He doesn't give a damn about any of them. And people getting suckered into this kind of idea of being anti-American because America is also an empire and invades nations based on false pretexts. And they're in Yemen now, four people dead, 53 in Iraq today, which was a result of the war in Iraq and, of course, Syria, etc. And so people sort of hold up Russia and China as these bastions of greatness and say, well, they're opposed to the American empire. Well, they are, but they'd be doing the same thing and do do the same things uh, when they can. And uh, Putin is every much every bit part of that. But he's a little bit more articulate and clever than our guys. Well, exactly right. I mean, clearly, um, Putin out, out, out maneuvered the Americans in Syria uh, last year, and quite brilliantly so, and, and made, made, uh, made a mockery of them and, and served, them, uh, served them their own dinner. So that was... But only because it overlapped with Russian interests. Exactly nothing right. Nothing to do with exactly morality right. or yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't... I, I, it's just the height of naivety to believe that this is because of some sort of altruism or, you know, wonderful loving of the, the people on his part. But, yeah. um, but let's talk about some of those skeletons in the past, and there are many different ones, and I'm not sure which ones... Um, your your most researched in, but we could talk about the Russian apartment bombings that brought him into power more or less. We have the Anna Politkovskaya um, murder and the murder of, of twenty nine journalists uh, during um, his reign. Um, we have. Uh, 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 I think that was on his his birthday when he did that as well. Oh really? I didn't know that yeah. was the calling card. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, any other, I mean, what, what aspects of, of his presidency do you find the most disturbing in terms of his rise to power and the way that he clings onto it? Well, I mean, he has open alliance with mafia figures I and mean, people maybe, I don't know how well known it is, but the mob wars in Russia, Trump, any mob wars anywhere else, we're talking about in like 92, 93, that era. And, uh, uh, Kaczynski and these guys, I don't know that. Putin has open alliances with organized crime, and, but he kind of had to, to, to get enough power to take on the oligarchs. He did whatever he could to do that, but to get that position, he really had to sell his soul to the devil. And they just straight up murder people, KGB style, bomb journalists, you know, oppressing um, newspapers, etc. But the thing is, compared to Russia prior to that, considering how bad the Soviet Union had been and the communists had been, like this level of uh, oppression and, and killing was minor um, compared to Russia's you know, recent history. And so people sort of overlook all those crimes in the past. But um, there's the Litvinenko affair, which I personally don't think 
the KGB had him killed because the guy died of polonium poison and it would be absolutely ridiculous to go kill somebody with an $11 million radioactive <laughs> element in the UK when you could just stab him in the head. Um, it seems like he, that was just a botched smuggling operation. And, uh, of course, that guy was working for Boris Berezovsky, who was Putin's main enemy. And so that you had a trumped-up story. So it gets dirty because a lot of the things they say he's guilty of, he wasn't. But then, like what you were talking about when they killed Anna, um, that is a, a famous story in the apartment bombings or, or the theater gas scenes and things. But it's just one among many, and it happened to get attention. But you'd have to really dig into it. There's a good book called The Godfather of the Kremlin I recommend people read. Um, it was the Russian editor for Forbes magazine. And he was actually killed after the book was published. He was shot and then he was in an elevator in a hospital, which got stuck conveniently. And unfortunately, he passed away. But, I mean, that really goes over a lot of the Russian politics. And it's just nasty. I mean, there's not a quick way to sum it up. But Putin is, is not a, a clean cut guy by any means and he, he really I compare him to Bush's father who was also a director of the CIA and involved in a lot of killings himself um, more than just when he was president or vice president exactly right um, yeah that brings up a lot of different points and uh, yeah um, I, I, you know who else was killed with polonium well, Arafat, probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, that seemed, that I think that's Russia. where they got it from because uh, if you look at the planes that Litvinenko were riding back and forth to, it was to Israel, and they had traces of polonium all over it as well as Borzbowski's residence. So it's pretty clear to me they were smuggling that stuff in from Israel. And But what were they going to do with it? They couldn't carry it out afterward when he botched it and died of an overdose. But what were they going to use that for? A dirty bomb? Or what was the point? That's that was the question mark that I had there, but mm. there's a huge story there. Um, and if you don't value your life very much, I suppose you could really dig into it. Uh, well, that, that's why I dropped it actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it uh, I mean, this, yeah, th that's the type of story that general genuinely is the kind of story that can get you killed. So, um, there's, I mean, just so many of these types of things floating around there. Um, the Polish, uh, presidential, uh, plane crash. Well, yeah, that, and what was, you know, prior to that, when uh, Saakashvili and the Polish president were, did their stunt in uh, Georgia, uh, which was ridiculous as well. But then I think that may have been a uh, possible motivation for that. But I don't know. I don't have enough evidence on that one. Like, I don't, I don't disbelieve it or anything, but I didn't really dig into that. I just, I I just assumed, like, oh, that's that. probably true. You know, but. The more I looked into it, the more suspicious it became. And uh, there's a lot of good info out there. But unfortunately, a lot of it is in Polish. So um, it requires a bit of digging. Um, well, I believe you, but it's not something I personally dug into. So. All right. Well, I guess just the point that I'm trying to get at here is that there are an awful lot of skeletons in this closet. And it just seems to me that a lot of people are being pushed into that, that uh, dichotomy that you were talking about, that, oh, the Chinese and Russians are standing up, therefore they're the good ones. And I, I guess my point is that this needs to be confronted, and it needs to be confronted now, because we really are being pushed into, at the very least, whatever they're calling it, the new Cold War, or whatever they're trying to call it at the moment, and the battle lines are being drawn right now, and we collectively, the human species, is being asked to take sides in this, as if there is a side to take which is not bloody and disgusting and, uh, and one that I don't want to take. 
And uh, I think it's important that we consciously make the decision not to put our lot in with one of these bloody brutality-driven regimes um, just because, well, you've got to be for something. You've got to be for one of these sides. Yeah, I don't want to sound alarmist or anything, but this is sort of how World War I got going. Exactly right. And here we are 100 years later, and we've seen this this sort of shades of World War I starting to, to reappear. And what does this mean? Where does this put us? How did we get suckered collectively into World World War One in the first place. It's because people slept, walked into it, and maybe, maybe there a hundred years ago they had the excuse that they hadn't seen anything like that before. But we've seen it. We've lived through this um, collectively um, for for generations now. We've seen this happening over and over again. And I think there's got to be a way for us to to make that mental decision not to put our lot in with one of these two sides before it becomes too late. Um, on that note, I, I, are, are there any anything that you would like to suggest to the audience, or any sources that you think are are important in regards to keeping ourselves above this fray? I I think for your audience, since it's an intelligent audience, what something they ought to do is go back and look at why Ukraine is in the financial condition that it's in to begin with, because the political crisis was predicated on the financial crisis. And so you're going to have to see, well, why did they accept so many loans and who did it and what was it for and where did the money go? Because right now, they, they won't be able to pay their bills for another two weeks. They don't have any money. I mean, they can get a, a second loan to pay for the first loan, a third loan to pay for, like, that sort of system. But you have to see, understand the financial problems first and then resources and just ignore the, what's on television, that theatrical stuff. I mean, that's there was a good article in Politico, believe it or not, um, called Disaster Porn uh, that I recommend people read. It was by a... Um, Sarah or Susan Ken, just look up disaster porn Politico and you can find that. And but I mean I don't know. I, I can tell you the sources that I read, but I don't really have like fixed sources. I just sort of read around and I I use my head and say, well, does that make sense or not with everything else I know? And and there aren't really any sources that are always accurate. I mean, it's sort of yeah. hit or miss. So That's, I don't really yeah. have a. I don't have a formula, but well, no, I think that is the the answer that we have to use. Use your head, and unfortunately, yeah. there's just no shortcut to that, and it involves a lot of digging. And one of the the points that I would put on the table there is to take a look at who is now assuming power in the newly formed Ukrainian government. And you look at uh, figures like Ihor Kolomoisky, who I'm probably mispronouncing there, who's just become the uh, the newly minted governor of Neprop. Petrovsk, which I'm definitely mispronouncing, but it's the uh, industrial. Oh, he's a um, a Stefan Bandera. Uh, uh, just he thinks he's an absolute hero, and this guy was a the, I guess you could say the, the Nazi in charge in the Ukraine. He was Ukrainian, but yeah, and they they just heroicize him, and it's it's again just what we were talking about. Yeah, the Russians killed millions of people in Ukraine, so a lot of them jumped on the German side as liberators, but. Hitler wasn't, he didn't give a damn about Ukrainians. He actually suggested uh, privately that, you know, assuming he was going to win, that when they opened up the schools there, they were only going to educate them enough to read the road signs and the minimal level and drown them in academic minutia, but make sure that they're never going to threaten uh, German engineers or anybody. I mean, they, they're so Machiavellian and disgustingly evil, and people get suckered for it. Oh, that team hurt me, so I'm going to jump on this other psychopath side 
It's uh, it's so true. And uh, again, there are so many different points that we could uh, put in into that matrix to show that people are constantly being suckered in again and again. And every time they think they're getting out of it by just joining another group, it's, it turns out that group, of course, is just using their membership as a springboard and a catapult to consolidating their own power. So um, again, it's it's oligarchs getting into power who are replacing uh, the uh, the old cronies who were in power before. Uh, again, Yanukovych uh, versus uh, Yushchenko. I mean, yeah. Again, Again, either side of a of a feces sandwich is not tasty to me. <laughs> yeah, the old gas princess and everything else. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. it's it's just. I mean, I'm glad you see it, and but it is frustrating. And I wish I had like a quick formula or answer on how to to get people to think more critically and not get stuck in these kind of games. But I mean, if I could answer that, we. You know, we could change a lot of stuff. Yeah, I guess so. Well, hopefully this conversation goes some way to at least getting people thinking along that path. And that's the first part. A, a cognitive liberty comes one person at a time and it comes from people refusing to accept the, the main narratives that are being propounded, either the mainstream narratives or the alternative narratives. We have to look critically at both sides and come to our own decisions and perhaps find a third way. Um, well, okay. I, I don't think I have any more specific questions on this. Are there any other points you'd like to put on the table before we wrap this up? Well, I think, you know, we'll see on the 16th what happens in uh, Crimea. And I just caught, I want to caution people, you know, not to get emotional about this. You don't want to die over Kiev or anything, but um, just have a cool head and look at this. And people do have a right to self-determination. And if they decide to join with the Russians, you know, May, they may see that as the lesser of three evils sort of situation. And so have sympathy and and look at things critically and just try not to get suckered by propaganda. In fact, you ought to watch TV and then automatically be able to cancel one thing out, whatever they said, because it's not going to be true. Exactly right. Or just turn the TV off altogether. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, I think this is a, a productive conversation, um, at the very least, to get people thinking along these lines and get them out of that uh, that duopoly, um, which is the, the the formula for control and always has been and continues to be a very effective one. But hopefully, the irate minority is listening and is out there and is engaged and is not going to fall into that trap. And uh, let's direct people over to your website again so that they can get a handle on your podcasts and the work that I know is coming out on a regular basis there at uh, mm -hmm. ANC Report. Yeah, ancreport.com has the podcast. I've recently been doing a lot of writing, but I'm bringing some new people in. So we'll have uh, myself and some others who will all be doing podcasts there. And I'm getting ready to post a bunch in a row, uh, mainly on Ukraine, also Venezuela, and because that's another topic we, we could get into too. Um, so yeah, check that out, ancreport.com. It stands for Anti-Neocon Report. Um, whether it's neoliberal, neoconservative, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm not fixed on labels. I just picked one, you know. But, um, yeah, I'd appreciate it. Um, bookmark it. And we'll ha it's uh, mobile-friendly now. So I'm a little slow on the technology side yeah, of things. Yeah, you've got to get the RSS working. I would <laughs> yeah. subscribe to that podcast in a minute, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I just send links around. But it's all going to be fixed within this month. Just had a lot going on here over here in, in Nara and Osaka personally and other things so right. but yeah okay excellent well thank you very much for your time today and uh and best of luck in the future well let's keep in touch yeah we should do this more regularly james all right peace